Uh, I'd like to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to the, the epistle of 1 John. Isn't it a, a simple and yet profound truth uh, in the words of the song that we just sang? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This hymn, uh, Jesus Loves Me, is the bonus hymn. Okay, In our series, 15 hymns every uh, Christian should know. But it's possible, and I think possible that this song, Jesus Loves Me, is the most well-known hymn, second only to Amazing Grace, uh, in our hymnals. This song, the, the hymn, Jesus Loves Me, was written by sisters, Anna and Susan Warner, um, and it was interesting, I don't know if you know this, but the, 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 the song, Jesus Loves Me, was written by Anna Warner and a part of a book that she and her sister wrote. They wrote a novel, a novel back in the 1800s. The title of the novel is Say and Seal. And one of the characters, a Mr. Linden, in the story, recited that poem in the story to a boy named Johnny Fax, a young boy who was dying. Mr. Linden recited those words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Those words were recited in the book. It's such a strange thing that in a novel, uh, one character speaking to another, sharing and reciting this poem, is how that poem, how that song first came to the attention of Christians. I would say that, that in, in all likelihood the novel has long since been forgotten. I've never seen it. I've never read it. But that song, that poem, has spread around the world. In fact, the song Jesus Loves Me is often the first hymn that's taught to new Christians, even in foreign countries where missionaries go there. And they teach them the simple song. I know that my children... In, uh, in, I think in every one of their cases, that song, Jesus Loves Me, was the first song that they learned to sing. Levi sings it all the time. In fact, if you were down there in Sunday school this morning, uh, you could hear him in the nursery singing it very loudly, singing Jesus Loves Me uh, over and over again. He loves the song. It's his, favorite, it's his favorite. Even as a toddler, a two-year-old, they can learn to sing this song, Jesus Loves Me. You know, I realized this, and, and as I was working on this this week and thinking about that song, and I realized that we can sometimes make things very complicated, can't we? I know I'm guilty of that sometimes, making things overly complicated. But I think there's, there's something to be said for the simple truths of Scripture. You know, I do enjoy wrestling with uh, some of the the deeper and more complicated and challenging questions of theology. I do. I really enjoy reading and studying out some of those things. But Jesus loves me. And the, the message of that little song is such a simple truth. But there's a depth uh, to the love that God has for us that passes beyond our ability to even comprehend. Even a toddler can learn to sing the song. But the most well 
a studied and learned scholar still has to confess that his understanding of the love of God is probably not that much deeper than that toddler who sings the song. It's just something about this truth that Jesus loves us, that God loves us, that is so profound and so rich. For our entire lives, I I wrote the puppet script, and so I, I, I wrote it thinking about Grandpa. Thinking about Grandpa as an older man, reflecting back on his life, never being tired. Never being tired of that fact. Never being tired of thinking about and of, of glorying in the fact that Jesus loves him. I, I just think there's something wonderful about that. We can spend our entire lives marveling that God, the Lord of hosts, the Alpha and Omega, the all-wise and all-powerful Creator, loves us. Why does He love us? How does He love us? Where can His love be seen? What is an appropriate response to His love? These are all very important questions. And they all vie for our attention. And this morning we're going to consider them very briefly. But whether or not we can answer those questions fully or not, we know one thing for sure. Yes. Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We look in the book of 1 John this morning, 1 John chapter 4, and I'd like to take just a few minutes, and I'd like for us to consider that simple truth. The verses we're going to look at really essentially teach us this truth, that God loves us, so that we can love Him and love others. God loves us so that we can love Him and love others. There are a lot of things in this passage of Scripture and in 1 John that could be discussed, and I don't want to take time, uh, we can't take time to discuss them all, but I'd like to just focus very briefly on verses 7 through 11. It's one paragraph in this chapter. And in verses 7 through 11, we see, I think, this kind of primary point that love is a test of truly belonging to God. So love is a test of truly belonging to God. Maybe we could put this another way, and and this is the way that I had first written it in my notes, is this, that, that true Christians love the way God loves True Christians love the way God loves because love is a test of truly belonging to God. And that's what John tells us here in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8. So let's look at these and uh, uh, let's read these. Let, let me see here. Um, Grace, would you read these verses for us really, really loud for everyone to hear? First John 4, 7 and 8. These two verses. The one who loves 
is born of God and knows God, it says. The one who does not love, he who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. This is the test. Love as a test of truly belonging to God. We read these two verses, and these two verses really frame the entire passage for us. Because they establish a very clear line of distinction. There is a very clear line between those who know God and those who only profess to know God. See, there's a very big distinction between the two. There are those who say that they know God, and there are those that truly know God. And so, as I speak to you this morning, I understand that that I'm, I'm speaking here to a group of people, and I know most of you here, and you say you know God. The question is, we say we know God, do we truly know Him? And this verse gives us the test. The one who knows God has received God's love. Therefore, he loves even as God loves. But the one who doesn't love as God loves doesn't truly know God. That's what these verses are telling us. In other words, the Christian who loves as a habitual practice proves that he knows the Lord. But a failure to live a life of love declares something else entirely. Failure to live a life of love declares that he has never known anything but separation from his maker. Now, here's the thing. When you think about this, I was thinking through this this week. Okay, here's the test. The test is, do we love like God loves? Okay. So we apply the test to ourselves. I apply the test to myself. Do I love the way God loves? Am I, as a Christian, I call myself a Christian, I say that I know God, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior, so do I love the way He loves? That's the test. I know what kind of grade I would give myself when I evaluate and answer this question, right? I eat, I definitely get a passing grade, okay? When it comes to the area of love, I know that. I just do, I know, okay? I mean, I know I can be selfish, and I can be childish at times, but, 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 I am a very loving person. Of course, of course, I'm a loving person, right? I mean, yeah, if every one of us, if we're going to evaluate ourselves here, right, we're going to give ourselves a passing grade. I mean, we ask the question, do you love? Are you a loving person? Because 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says that everyone who loves knows God and is born of God. But the one who doesn't love does not know God. No, 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 of course, I am a loving person. Of course I am. At least when I'm the one doing the grading, right? This is why, by the way, as a teacher, I never let my students grade their own papers. Okay? They didn't get to decide whether they were, you know. But there's a flaw there, isn't there? Do you kind of see the flaw in that system of evaluation, right? If I'm judging whether or not I'm a loving person or not, of course, of course I'm loving. Yes. Oh, I'm a loving. I, I'm a very kind and loving person. 
tolerant, I'm gentle, I'm gracious. You can stop me anytime you want, but you don't have to. I just keep... <laughs> you see, the, the, the flaw, the flaw in that system, any system of self-evaluation is that we are not, we're not able to judge ourselves fairly, evenly. We're biased. We prefer ourselves to others. I want to make sure that I that I look good. I want to make sure that I uh, am well considered. So, of course, if I evaluate myself in this area, yes, I'm a loving person. Of course I'm a loving person. And I know you all would say the same thing. Not about me, I'm thinking about yourselves. If we evaluate ourselves, of course we're going to come to the conclusion that we're loving people. So I say, well, let's let's change that up a little bit. I wonder what kind of grade that you would get if we asked your spouse. Oh, some of you are looking at it. <laughs> Don't have to say anything. What if we asked your children? What if we asked your parents? What if we asked your closest friend to grade you, give you a grade on how loving you are? We say this is the standard. John says if we love, it shows that we know him. If we do not love, it shows that we don't know him. That's the standard. So let's grade each other. Let's evaluate ourselves, right? But I would suggest to you that even there we have a flawed system of evaluation. Oh, sure, you can ask your spouse, how loving am I? Do I demonstrate this kind of love? And your spouse may give you an answer. And it may be closer to the truth than your own self-evaluation. But the fact of the matter is, your spouse is probably just as likely to alter the truth so that they look better by comparison as you are when you judge yourself to make sure you look good. The real issue is this. We start looking around, either want to evaluate ourselves or we want someone else to evaluate us and decide whether how we fit with respect to this issue. We're, we're going about it all wrong. See. The issue here is not how I define love and therefore define loving, right? Because I can justify just about any kind of behavior I want to do as loving because I can change the definition of loving to match whatever I'm doing. And you could do the same thing for me. You know, last week we celebrated three years here at the church. And you, as a church, have been very gracious to us. And you could talk about how loving your pastor is. Go ahead if you want. You, you, could, no, you could talk about how loving your pastor is. But the truth is... Neither you nor I are in a position to judge rightly whether or not I am meeting the standard of First John 4, 7, 8. Amen. And frankly, I'm, none of us are for any of us. We don't, we're not called to hold each other to the standard. See? When we start doing that, it becomes very complicated. Everyone's got their own definition of love. Everyone's got their own idea of how this standard needs to be met. This is why we come back to the Scriptures, because I want to simplify things. 
not only in this passage, not only do we have love as a test of truly belonging to God, but in, in the very next verse, we have what I call the proof of genuine love. The proof of genuine love. Look at verse 9. Okay? Look at verse 9. Notice what he says here. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God. God has given us a test to see whether we truly belong to him. That's 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Do you love like God loves? That's the test. But God has not just left us alone to evaluate ourselves, to decide what love is and whether or not we are loving. He is also, here in verse 9, He has also given us a display of genuine love. He has shown us what this love looks like so we can see it. So we can see exactly what is the standard to which I ought to be compared. So that we don't get to pick our own standard of what love is. That's what we see here in verse 9. The proof of genuine love. Maybe this is... Oops, that's not wrong. Okay. The proof of genuine love. This is the standard. This is the display, and what does he tell us here in verse 9? God has manifested, or he has displayed, he has, uh, he has um, shown us what love is. That's what he's saying there at the beginning of verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested. It was displayed. God put love on display for us. And how did he do that? He sent his only begotten son into the world. He sent His only begotten Son into the world. That we might live through Him. This is what love is. So you want to know what love is. You want to know what God's Word teaches about love. It's right here. God displayed love. How? When He sent His Son to earth. I mean, think about it. When in the incarnation, right? In the, the, the miracle by which God of heaven, Jesus Christ, who is eternally God, co-equal with the Father, the miracle that He would take on human flesh and become the God-man, receiving in that The human limitations, the the weaknesses of human flesh, not sin, understand, but the limitations of a finite and human creature because he took on human flesh. It's a miracle and it's something that we can't explain fully because we understand. He took on human flesh, he became a man, but he didn't didn't cease to be God. So, Somehow, in a way that I don't think any of us could possibly fully understand. He became one of us while still being God. This miracle, think about how humbling that was. 
Think about how he lowered himself to do that. How he left all of the glories of heaven when he came to earth. You talk about you, you, you talk about um, about bringing himself down to a lower station in life. I mean, we can't even, I don't think we can even really imagine what it was. For him to, to go from the glories of heaven to being born as a man here on earth. That is love. That's a display of love. But of course it wasn't just that, because it wasn't just that he came to earth as a man, but he lived a life as a man on earth. And what does the Bible tell us that he endured as he was living here on earth? He was tempted, right? Scripture tells us that he was tempted in the same ways as we are. Right? And yet, he endured temptation, but remained pure and untainted by sin. Think of that as a display of love. What love it must have taken for him to reject the temptation of sin and to to, to be the perfect example of purity and holiness. In his death, Jesus died. Brutal cruel death. Suffering the torment of our sin. And always, it just, it, it, it always, um, I can't think of this. It, it stuns me when I think about the words of Jesus on the cross. Father, why? God, it's not Father. He says, my God, God, why have you forsaken me? I think about that. The Jesus Christ, who had eternally existed with the Father in fellowship, in love, in, in, in to come to earth, and when our sin was placed on his back, what does he cry out? Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You realize that, that for the only time in all of eternity, There's a wedge of separation driven between the Father and the Son. And what is it? It's our sin. That's what caused Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not only to suffer the torment of our sin, but to suffer the cruelty and the injustice of the creatures He came to save. As those cruel men tortured Him mocked him and brutally nailed him to the cross to hang on that cross until he could no longer breathe and he died. Horrible. That is love. That was Jesus Christ manifesting the love of God. And of course, all of that would be incomplete without the resurrection. Right? In the resurrection where where God's love overcame death itself. 
and stripped the grave of its power over mankind. The bars of death couldn't hold him. That is, in every aspect, in every facet of the life of Jesus Christ, we have the love of God put on display for us. So we can see it. So we can know what love is. I mean, this is the teaching. This is what Scripture tells us. Romans 5.8, Paul says this, right? But God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love on display. The spurned and rejected Creator. Giving His one and only Son to be slaughtered by the very rebellious creatures whom He loved. And rising again to offer them freedom and hope and life. So we have this standard, right? Do you love like God loves? Because love is the test. Love determines whether or not we know God or not. Right? That's 1 John 4, 7 and 8. But then what do we say? Well, what is love? How do we know if we meet the standard? How do we know if we know Him based on love? Well, it goes to the verse 9 then. It's because He showed us what love was when He sent His Son. But even as we read in verse 9, we realize what He's talking about here. Jesus Christ coming to earth to live, to die, and to rise again. We realize there's something else about love that this teaches us. We find this in verse 10. I call it, not the proof of genuine love, I call it the price of genuine love. The price of genuine love. Look at verse 10. And he says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. We didn't love God first. God wasn't, uh, He wasn't paying a debt to us that He owed us because we loved Him first. He loved us when we were still sinners, when we were still rebels, when we still rejected Him. He loved us. He sent His Son. But He didn't just send His Son. I mean, in a way, that would be enough to show that He loved us. Right? For Jesus Christ to leave heaven and come to earth as a man. That could be enough, but it's not. Because it says here in verse 10 that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is a very long word and it's very, can be very challenging theologically and I don't want to get into all that. But I want to just emphasize this. The, the idea behind propitiation is this, that there was a price to be paid. And He paid that price. He paid the price that was demanded. That's what propitiation means. It means paying a price, making a satisfactory payment. We must never forget that love carries a great cost and the cost of love you got to hear this you got to understand this the cost of love is always paid by the one who loves on behalf of the one who is loved 
The cost of love is always paid by the one who loves on behalf of the one who is loved. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, who is God himself, made a satisfactory payment on behalf of sinful men so that the righteous wrath of God could be appeased, so that his justice could be met. Now, what was the price? What was it? It was nothing other than the blood of Jesus Christ, which he shed as he hung on that cross of wood suffering the shame of God's curse and the outpouring of God's wrath. If we're going to understand what it means to love, we've got to understand what it means to be loved by God. And so we we look at this and we ask this question, how is God's love an example for us? What, What do we take from this? What are the principles of love that we can take from the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ? Well, God's love defines what true biblical love looks like. So when we read these verses, verses 9 and 10 specifically, we get a picture of what true love requires of us. You see, if we are going to love the way God loves, and the way that we are called to love, then first and foremost, we, we learn by His example of what love really is. And how do we, what do we drop now? Well, here's, maybe if you want to say it in a nutshell, this is it. Love is a commitment to sacrifice our most precious possession for the good of someone else. Think about that. If love is a commitment to sacrifice our most precious possession for the good of someone else, then what did love require of God? His most prized possession. And what was his most prized possession? His one and only begotten Son. See, John uses that expression here. There in verse uh, in verse 9. His only begotten. Monogenes is the word there. It's not a very common term. It's the only time John uses it here in 1 John. He uses it several times in the Gospel of John. John 3.16 is a great example. You're familiar with that verse. His only begotten Son. It means one of a kind. Unique. It emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ was unique. The only one. The most precious and prized possession. That's what it's, that's what it talks about here. True love. What's genuine love? Michael? Stop. What's genuine love? It's offering up your most prized possession for the good of someone else. That's what God did. He, he sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to make Himself a sacrifice for our sins. But what about for you and for me? What does love require? I don't know if I can answer that question for you. We need to consider. We need to consider what is the most 
important, most precious thing that we have? What is the thing that is most precious to me? And then give it up for the good of someone else. That is the love that God showed to us. That is the love that we are then to show. And so we come finally to verse 11. We have the proof of genuine love. We have the price of genuine love. And finally we have the practice of genuine love. Verse 11. Beloved. This twice, by the way, in this paragraph he's used that term, beloved. He wants, John when he was writing this, wanted the people who read it to know that they were loved. And so I say it to you, beloved. If God so loved us. In other words, if God loved us in this way. If God loved us this much, to this extent, we also ought to love one another. The word ought there is, carries the idea of an obligation. It's a debt. It is something that we owe. Why? Because we have been loved greatly. Because God has loved us to such a great extent. How can we hold back? I mean, this is the Christian life in a nutshell. If we have been loved in this way, then we cannot claim the right to withhold such love from others. It's more than a suggestion. It's an obligation for every believer to love one another. This, this love is displayed. It's displayed within relationships that we build. When we pray for one another. When we encourage one another. When we disciple one another. When we confront one another. When we forgive one another. When we honor one another. When we admonish one another. And those are just some of the biblical terms. All of them are simply love being lived out. Probably the only place, or rather I would say this is displayed wonderfully in the church. It really is. This is one of the reasons the church is such a powerful and, 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 and wonderful thing because the church provides us with a concrete body a limited group of people with whom we are to share a life of love. That's why it's so important for us to be committed to the church because this group of people, not the group of people that meets down the road, not a group of people three states away, nothing wrong with them, that's fine, but this is the place, these are the people, and as we are part of this church, we are to gather together and show love to one another. Again, it doesn't exclude us from showing love to people outside of here. Don't get me wrong. But there's a very concrete group of people that God has brought together whom we are to love. Whom we are to sacrifice the most precious things to us for their good. Following this example. Now the only place probably that I can think of that it is better displayed than in the church is in the home. 
We love those people who are closest to us. When we sacrifice our desires, we learn to love those who are often the most hurtful to us. I mean, I know. I know because I know you, most of you. Family is a place where hurt is sometimes the most profound, isn't it? The people that you love, the people in your family, some of them are the ones who've hurt you the most because they're the closest. They got the most opportunity. They know you better than anyone. They hurt. And what an opportunity then when we're hurt. What an opportunity when we're mistreated. What an opportunity when there is need. And we have someone in close proximity, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, family, close, in need of forgiveness, in need of of honor, in need of, of help and encouragement, in need of prayer in need of a demonstration of love, in need of a sacrifice of ourselves, of the things that are most precious to us for their good. As believers, we can display God's love everywhere. We can display it at work and at school. Display it at the fair. Display it at the back-to-school block party in two weeks. Right here. We can display the love of God everywhere. Anywhere. As I close this morning, I want to have the children help me out with something. Michael and Grace and Nikita, you're close. Lydia maybe can help too if you want. I don't know if the other kids are in the back. They don't have to. We don't need that many. But Would you guys come up here for a second, please? The children are going to pass out a little piece of paper to you. The children are going to give you a little, a little card this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to pray when they're done passing those out. And as I pray, I'd like for each of us to ask the Lord how we should respond to this very simple question. What is one concrete and specific way that I can show the self-sacrificing love of God to someone else this week? We're going to pray, and I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Lord to help you see how you can fill that blank in. Okay? Now I want you to take that card with you. I don't want you to give it back to me. Take one for yourselves too, okay? Take one for yourselves. You have to fill them up too. Okay? I want you to keep that card this week to remind you. Ask the Lord to show you one thing. What's one concrete thing I can do this week to show love? This kind of self-sacrificing love to another individual. I want you to pray and ask the Lord to direct you in your response to that. I want you to write down a response and I want you to keep it. 
And I want you to look at it this week so that you can do it. So it will remind you. Listen, we say that we know God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, here's the test. You say you know God, but here's what it looks like when you truly know God. You love the way He loves. So I want to challenge you to do that this week. I'm going to pray, and then Joy's going to come, and she's going to start playing through our next song. And, but as she's playing, I want you to fill that card out. And just take a few minutes. We're not going to rush you. And I want you to fill that out, and I want to encourage you. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray.